Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, oh, here we are, episode 132. This is 132. And again, if you have any questions or comments, you can leave it for us at the comment section of Podbean, or you can email them directly to me at kbmakel at aol.com. K-B-M-A-K-E-L at AOL.com. And we always like to have questions, comments. Tell me if you like the music, the new music, or tell me if you hate it. Doesn't matter. Uh, so we're going to start off with our usual pain in the Ukraine. And, you know, we, we need to have serious people. We, we saw Kamala Harris, you know, camel toed, uh, you know, just a fool laughing when they were talking to her about refugees refugees people who genuinely suffering have probably lost their homes everything they ever had all their memories all the stuff they've kept from their parents or grandparents all that kind of stuff that we just kind of take for granted all their picture albums everything everything nice they've had unless they could carry it with them it's gone it's gone and she laughed about that now here's another example of just another fool, a a immature, college-educated girl that cannot do what she's supposed to do, can't handle her job, and that's Jan Saki, or Pasaki, as it's actually spelled. I think it's Greek, so the um, the P and the S are always the S Saki, but it's Pasaki is the way it's spelled. Um, here she uh, here she is. And she's laughing when, you know, all these sanction nonsense, when you sanction the oligarchs and they sanction this and they sanction Putin, then the then Putin sanctions them back. He sanctions Biden and, and even Hunter Biden, um, you know, and all the rest of them. So when they get sanctioned back, she's laughing going, well, they obviously didn't put Junior on there. So... It's not Joe Biden Jr., it's Joe Biden, who is his father. His father was named Joe Biden, too. And, of course, the stupid part about that is, the part where you know that she's just mentally retarded, is that, you know, first of all, when you're up there, you don't make jokes, and you don't make off-the-cuff jokes. That's just a basic tenet. But there she was. But she, if she understood that the Russians could have said the same thing. They could have said, oh, you've actually sanctioned Vladimir Putin's father, not Vladimir Putin, because his father was named Vladimir Putin too. And you don't even have to look it up to know that. You just look, if you know how Russian names are constructed, the current Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, is Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. His middle name is a form of his father's first name. So Vladimirovich is obviously, his father was named Vladimir Putin too. They should have looked that up before you even say, if you would think that this fool would have looked it up and, and figured it out. But she didn't. And she made a stupid joke. She actually, they didn't take the bait because it's juvenile. But they could have taken the bait and said, oh, okay, if you said that, then... It also goes this way, too. Whenever you're in a position like that, you have to look. What does the obverse of my statement create? What are the ramifications 
if they use that same logic that I'm using on them on me and she she clearly didn't understand that we don't have serious people we have fools in charge and even just joking anything about this situation is horrible because you know just look at the TV images the suffering just the you know four weeks of the most miserable part of the human condition and to even have any levity or laugh about that is ridiculous or to have flippant off-the-cuff comments is really stupid disrespectful and unprofessional so that's the first part of pain in the Ukraine the next part is you know everyone is surprised gee the Russian armed forces aren't doing very well well they're doing what they do and what they're doing I think a lot of people expected that they would be doing much better, that they would have taken more ground, they would have taken more cities, and it would basically would have been over. Um, first of all, war is unpredictable, and it's never as short as you think it is. Um, no one who ever predicted a short war has come out right. It just not. Just doesn't happen. The next thing is you, you have to look at what Russia really is. They are a nuclear armed regional land power and what that really means is they're not a superpower they're not they have a lot they have more territory than any other country in the world but they're not a superpower they're a regional land power and that's what regional land powers look like you know tanks are rusty um, conscripts the whole thing think of the Iraqi army at the beginning of Desert Storm you know you that's that's the kind of army that Putin has um, they don't have a lot of the technical innovations. They can't, well, and I, I, I'm trying to put this into terms that are, that sound understandable and can be, can be, you know, kind of digested by everyone. But essentially, you know, weapons are one aspect of it, but command and control and the ability to see the battlefield and coordinate all of your actions and all of your weapons is very big and obviously they don't have that you know the old it's, it's a very simple concept intelligence where the enemy is and where his valuable things are drives fires and fires being artillery aircraft rockets anything that you know lands on them and can destroy something intelligence drives fires which enable maneuver so if you have good intelligence and you can hit the important things with fire and it and if not destroy them at least suppress them then you can maneuver then you have freedom of maneuver they their their most valuable things can't hit you back or they can't see you it's a whole whole thing it sounds the concept is very simple the execution and the details are incredibly complex obviously the russians don't have that level of complexity down so they're just doing a grinding assault just like you would see in World War II and they're using their equipment which you know frankly the other big surprise is um, not really that big a surprise but their equipment is trash I mean the T-72 is a crappy tank it always has been a crappy tank you can upgrade it it's a crappy tank and you can upgrade it but it's still gonna get clobbered it's been clobbered everywhere uh, obviously their Air Force has got some real weaknesses um, as far as all kinds of things that they're doing 
um, even just the identification of friend and foe and, and all this, you would think that they would have absolute mastery of the skies and wouldn't have to come in low, but when they do, uh, they seem to have had a problem. They seem to have had a problem. And they're hitting things now that are not targets that they would like to hit. You know, don't believe the propaganda. They're not out trying to find maternity hospitals, schools, movie theaters, and all that. They're not looking for those to hit. They're hitting those because they can't tell them from something that actually is valuable. You don't want to waste your ammunition on something that doesn't matter. You know, that's that's just basic warfighting 101. Um, you know, it's like going if you're going hunting, you want to shoot the animal or bird that you're hunting. You don't go out and shoot at a stump and scare all that other stuff away or, or ignore it. You know, it's, it's basic. You want to put the munition on the correct target that's going to do you the most good and achieve your objective. So that's, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a very sloppy, broad front, grinding situation. And, um, you know, frankly, I, don't, I, don't, I think this is going to go on until they negotiate an end. And I think there's actually common ground. The shame of it is, I think that they can find some common ground and maybe this didn't need to happen at all. But let me tell you something, something else. And maybe you're like me, maybe you're not. I, I've run across a few people online and a few people in person who this virtue signaling of, well, I'm for the Ukrainians. I'd go fight for the Ukrainians. Was that right? You would actually go do that. Because here's here's the problem. Um, when somebody says, I'd go fight for the Ukrainians, da, 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 da. And, they, and, and it's all about posturing, looking big in front of everybody, virtue signaling. It's about all that. And if you really want to call those guys out, and you really want to, you know, basically cut them down to size, I've, I've actually kind of done this, so I'm going to lay it out how I do it. First thing I say is, well, that's interesting. That's great. I guess your heart is in the right place. But what Slavic language do you speak with proficiency or native expertise? And the answer was none. They, they, they obviously don't. And it's like, really, do you, do you have any expertise in a Slavic language? And the answer is no. I mean, you cannot go to Ukraine after Duolingo for a couple of weeks or Rosetta Stone or some other some other kind of little, uh, um, you know, babble. The, those programs aren't going to help you. Okay, you cannot go there and navigate because you don't know who you're talking to. You wouldn't know, can, can most people tell Russian from Ukrainian? No. And unless they're wearing the little flags on their sleeves or, heaven forbid, you stumble into some sort of a special forces type unit, a special operations unit, um, they may be impersonating friendly people, people who you think are friendly to you, and, and they're not. They're the bad guys. But you can't tell because you can't communicate. You can't... And if that's not a problem, even if you get over there, and we'll talk about that a little later, you, you can't understand what people are telling you 
when somebody says run there's a tank coming or the enemy is around the corner or this is where you go to get resupplied for ammunition this is how you get fed if you get hurt this is where you go um, if you can't understand any of that what possible use are you um, you're obviously going to be a bigger detraction uh, and face it there's no more Lafayette Esquadrille where there's going to be this group of Americans who go over and, and you're just you're okay because you're in with a group of Americans and you understand them it's not going to work that way um, you are not going to be able to culturally or linguistically understand the environment you're in and therefore you will not survive you will not go very well so that's the first thing so unless you have that kind of proficiency I wouldn't even begin to think about it the next thing is ask them what their relevant experience is and if somebody has never been in the military but they think well this is obviously cool because they've got a bunch of supermodel looking girls that uh, are picking up AK-74s at, at the local police stations and I'll just kind of hang with them and uh, you know I'm pretty good because I shot IPDA or I shot ISPC um, you know people think that they're very good because they can do that um, I got news for you uh, what you want to hear when they talk about relevant experience is military branch usually ground combat arms oriented uh, you want to hear what their MOS was there's a big difference between a fuel handler not that that's not a good thing because we got to have those guys they're important but they're not exactly your frontline combat killers you know they're not they're not the guys out there shooting people at 600 yards and, and beyond they're not the guys out there the infantrymen carrying around machine guns they were they were fuel handlers so what is their MOS military occupation specialty the, the, the next thing you want to do is okay well where did you serve was it combat I mean did you go through training it and you want to hear at least you want to hear Fort Benning Fort Bragg Paris Island Camp Pendleton you know you want to hear something like that you don't want to hear you know I was in the Civil Air Patrol ground <laughs> ground rescue unit and I did that for three years you know I'm, I'm sorry that's 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 probably not what they're looking for and that's not gonna not gonna give you any it's not gonna give these guys any kind of uh, credibility so you're looking for a location if they don't have that then well what's your weapons expertise and and these guys will tell you what these guys will tell you is very very interesting it's it's like well I can shoot an AK I shot my friends AK maybe even I have an AK and, and I have a pistol too and uh, you know maybe they okay great so you can shoot a basic rifle and a basic pistol what about machine guns do you know how to do immediate action on a lighter medium or heavy machine gun something you're liable to to run across there do you even know how to lubricate it? Do you even know how to load it? Some of them are very peculiar. A lot of those com, com block weapons, you know, the Warsaw Pact weapons, they don't really work unless it's AK based. It doesn't really work the way we think it, that it would work. So do they have any of that? And then we're talking about, okay, well, how, do you know how to shoot a javelin missile? 
and they won't. Have you ever shot an, any kind of an anti-tank rocket or missile? Ever shot an RPG? And the answer is they, they don't have that experience. And, and you know what? There's no time to train them. They, they're not going to go over to Ukraine, get into a training camp, and it's like, well, six weeks later, yay, boot, you know, you can go, you can go fight the bad guys now. No, they don't have time for that. If you don't have those skills, you don't have those skills. And shooting a, an AK or, or a basic pistol just doesn't, just doesn't cut it. I mean, you're, you're not going to be value-added to anything if you don't have the requisite military skills. And have they shot an anti-tank weapon, anti-tank rocket, anti-tank missile, anti-tank anything, an RPG? And the answer is no. They've, they've never shot that. There's, that's a whole nother ballgame. And, and frankly, those are the game-changer weapons right now. Uh, those are the game-changer weapons. So... These guys who think they're just going to walk over there and be like Rambo and shoot the place up and, and win are, are crazy. They're absolutely crazy. And, you know, the weapons, you know, do they know how to maintain their weapons in that environment? Do they even know? This isn't a match. This isn't fun. This isn't anything that that people should be, be doing. It's going to be the harshest most unforgiving environment that you could be at besides maybe being out in the ocean in a rubber raft or something then there's always the next thing just the practical things well how are you going to get there well i'll go to poland and go to the border okay well who are you going to link up with who's who's going to feed you who's going to equip you who's going to integrate you into whatever defensive deal you're just not going to go to poland walk up to the border and just wander over into this combat zone find a fun place to be and, and be there. That's just not going to happen. Um, the the locals and whatever military structure is there is going to be very suspicious of you because they didn't ask you to be there. They, you know How are they going to know that you what your intentions are, who you are, anything about you? And it's going to be very difficult because you can't communicate with them. So it's going to be very hard unless you can find an English speaker because guess what? the terps over there don't exist like they were in the global war on terror terp meaning an interpreter there's not going to be a lot of people there who speak english that's one of the areas of the world kind of the slavic world where english has not proliferated the way that it has in a lot of other places and and finally one of the things if you really think about it you know, a lot of women in these Eastern European countries, and I've, I physically have met them, they learned how to field strip an AK when they were in high school. They have fired the fully automatic AKs as part of civil defense or militia-style training. So, you know, you're not, if you don't have any kind of military skills, you are not a person who's particularly valuable to them. As a matter of fact, for almost every other reason, you're a, you're a detriment. Um, yeah, you're a detriment. So that's the, that's the bad part. Now, there's another aspect of this, too. Let's just say that a person goes over there with all the, the debits I've, I've talked about, and they get grabbed by the other side. Well, guess what you are? You're not a Ukrainian. You're certainly not a Russian. So what are you? Well, you're an illegal combatant in their eyes. 
or a spy. And both of those usually have a very bad ending. A very, very bad ending. Which means you can be just summarily executed. They may not lock you up. If you're an illegal combatant, they're not even going to extend Geneva Convention uh, protocols to you. Now, I don't know that if they're doing it anyway with anybody else they capture, but you're an illegal combatant. We lock those people up in Guantanamo. There are a bunch of them still down there. So uh, people ought to think about that. Think long and hard about that. And finally, finally, the, the true test of a professional that you can lay on them is, okay, if you're going to go over there, you know, you're not going to be able to take your, your weapons with you. You're probably not going to be even be able to take kit with you, you know, any any kind of body armor or web gear or any of that kind of stuff. What are the, what is the one essential piece of equipment that you have to have? The one essential piece. And they will probably tell you maybe a warm sleeping bag, which is not a bad answer. Uh, maybe good canteens or water carriers. That's not a bad answer either, but they're not the answer. The one thing that a genuine combat soldier will insist upon is an extremely durable and well-broken-in pair of boots. Because if you can't move, if you get blisters on your little feetsies because they went down to Cabela's and bought a really nice set of boots but didn't bother to break them in and the first time they put them on is when they're at the border they're gonna get blisters and it can't be these cheesy little sneaker boots that you see the special operations guys run around in you need a pair of World War three tough combat boots and you know there's great companies that make them Danner and, and on and on and on but you've got to have an extremely good and extremely durable and a well broken in which is always the thing pair of combat boots or else you're going to be totally out because when your feet go you're not going to move and people they don't have enough people to carry you around in a, in a sedan chair so you can go mow down the enemy um so if they can't even tell you that then you know that they're a joke and and i say most most people when you really ask them and you really press them it's just virtue signaling and they're puffing they're trying to impress the girls they've got some they've got some ridiculous notion that they're going to go over there and all these ukrainian supermodel looking girls are are going to idolize them because they're there fighting for freedom um and it's all not true um the harsh reality is going to be something else the other thing is timing. Uh, I would say that anybody who would be going right now, by the time you get there, there's a really good chance it's going to be over one way or another. So it's, that's the other thing. One guy was floating that, that uh, well, the Ukrainian army will pay you. It was like a whopping $100 a day, which I think comes out to, what, like $36,000 a year. Wow that's a lot to risk your life for um you know it's it's even if someone's well-intentioned and their heart's in the right place the thing they really need to do is 
if you really want to if you really want to contribute to the situation and make it better it's not trying to you know bluster about how you'd go over there and kill all the kill all the raw the ruskies or the commies the bottom line is go work some overtime take the extra money and donate that and as much as you can to the relief effort for humanitarian aid that's what you really should do that's what these people should really do and uh if they do that then they're actually contributing something positive because everybody needs money everybody so uh you know they can't buy blankets or mres or any of that stuff without money so that would be a way to help the refugees and that's that's the most positive thing anybody can do right now especially from the united states and especially given all those limitations i talked about um you know war is not an ojt environment and these people think it's cute running around throwing molotov cocktails and all this what you're not seeing is that a certain percentage of people who throw molotov cocktails get immolated by their own molotov cocktail that that happens um you know this isn't the chaz where people can kind of get away with stuff and, and go this isn't kenosha where you can cap the bad guys this is very very serious business with some very very ruthless people so that's the that's the part of it i wanted to say i'm sick and tired of virtue signaling and i'm tired of hearing these guys and that's why i just lay some of those questions on them and when they don't have answers you know they've just embarrassed themselves but they deserve it and i don't like to throw my own resume on the on the table or anything but I've been in two armed conflicts. I've also served in the Balkans. And, and I kind of know what I'm talking about. I've been infantryman and a special operations guy. So there you go. You know, I just, I'm just trying to tell you what I know, what I think, and what I say to these people. Um, that's it. And you now can do the same thing. Okay, a couple other things. I, got, I was doing my uh, powder coating casting and powder coating of bullets for my 32 Winchester special and again I'm using the Lee 32 the 32 specials a 321 bore notionally um, they almost always run a little looser than that and I have not slugged mine but I have a 323 bullet mold it's a Lee and a 323 the little push sizer that they they have so I cast them, powder coat them, then I size them to 323, which is, you know, I'm probably got a 322 gun anyway, so this is probably a good deal. Um, I haven't test fired them yet, but at least I've got them seated. And again, it's that Lee bullet design is such that in lever guns, you have to seat the bullet kind of deep into the case, which doesn't matter because I'm only using unique powder and these are not long range super hunting loads or anything these are going to be shot at 25 and 50 yards uh, for fun so they don't have to be super special and what i found was um, i only have one winchester 32 special um, i don't even really need to size the cases the the first case i sized i don't know what the what the deal was but it, it kind of got crunched in the sizer <laughs> And so I said, hmm, that, that's not working out real well. So I decided, 
well, shoot, I, I did the, uh, the just the chamber test of would the empty shell go into the chamber, and it did. And I realized, hey, I'm using a 323 bullet, so, you know, I don't really need to size that neck down just to expand it to take the 323 bullet. So what I did was I'm just actually uh, punching the primer and then going through the rest of the loading. So, um and there's plenty of neck tension it's good it's seated a little deeper than I like but it's a light load anyway so it's not going to be a big deal and it's going to be it's going to take a rifle that right now unless you can find factory ammo for it isn't usable and turn it into some that's it's usable and it'll be fine for you know the usual collection of the usual suspects of trash pandas and anything else I need to shoot it'll be it'll be just fine and it can take on you know, um, there are bobcats and things. I don't really go after those, but, you know, it could take on something else if I needed it to. It's not going to be powerful enough. So that's the 32 Special. Uh, you know, powder coating bullets is a super cool thing. It's it's a very good process. And you come out with uh, bullets that can, you know, uh, you don't have, really have to worry about letting, which is nice. Okay, let's go to the part of the podcast which is my favorite, which is questions and answers. Okay, here's our first one. Have you heard of the ammunition company that's going to give 1 million rounds of ammunition to the Ukraine? Yeah, I heard about that. I think they're jackasses. Um, They're jackasses for a couple different reasons. Uh, Number one, as I look at the at the footage all I'm really seeing are AK-74 type weapons that's all I'm really seeing um, maybe they have I'm sure they must have 762 by 39 AKs but I haven't seen them I have seen as I look on Google images and all kinds of places you'll see what appears to be a 762 by 39 AK but I can't attest to how authentic these photographs are. But I have seen, you know, the raw footage and the, you know, the, the news reports and things. It appears to be mostly AK-74s and not 47s. So unless this guy's got a million rounds of 545, um, he's not going to be a big, a big help. Um, I did do some reading on it, and I understand that he's trying to get a million rounds of 762 by 39 again I don't know that there's that much of it um, that there's that many weapons that fire it I'm sure there are some and maybe maybe there's a lot in which case in which case he's pouring more resources into a logistical nightmare because you know frankly the Ukrainians are, are, are scrounging for everything so they're gonna obviously have a mixed bunch of calibers 76 you know for sure they're going to have 762 by 39 in some quantity maybe not a lot but some a lot of 545 some 762 by 54 and probably various pistols everything from Takarev style you know 762 by 25 to 9 millimeter you know they're going to have that mixed bag of stuff you know that they're they're going to be shaking out everything and I'm sure they've already done that. I'm sure everything that can fu- actuate a cartridge is out. Probably even antiques. So I don't know that giving them a million rounds of anything is going to help. Um, 
And again, what does that do to the ammo supply in this country? What is what does a million rounds look like? Well, if you take a thousand round case, you're talking one thousand one thousand round cases. That's a million rounds. Now, a case of ammo probably weighs what forty pounds? Yeah, it's about forty pounds, depending on caliber, of course. Thirty out six would weigh a lot more than, say, five four five does, but. So let's just say it's 40 pounds. That's a lot to get over there and then to get up to the border and hand over to somebody because they're not going to land it at an airfield in in Ukraine. So how does it even get there? I mean, and, and are the people in Poland okay with this? The officials, the authorities in Poland, are they okay with this? I mean, I understand that they're probably okay with NATO countries giving you know the arms and the javelin missiles and all the rest of it but are they good with just a private company going hey we got a million rounds of ammo here in these three or four trucks and we're gonna you know drive it up to the border and hand it to ukrainians i mean how does that even work wouldn't it make more sense and i'm just saying you know wouldn't it make more sense let's just say it's all 762 by 39 wouldn't it make more sense just to say, hey, we've produced a, a million rounds of 762 by 39. We're going to sell these for 250 bucks a case or 200 bucks a case. And we're taking all the proceeds and we're going to donate that to refugee relief. Wouldn't that make more sense? Or if they want to, they could take the money and I didn't calculate how much money that would all be, but a thousand, that's, I'd be, let's just say it's 250 bucks a case. You got a thousand cases. That's $250,000. You drive up to the gate of the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C., and you have a bag of $250,000, or you have a check, or whatever, and you hand it to an embassy official and say, here, you can buy weapons for your people. You can buy ammo for your people. And they can take that $250,000, go to Romania, and buy the calibers they need. That seems to me to be a lot better than trying to ship it and do it. It's, it's, again, going back to what I was talking about for almost 30 minutes earlier, seems like virtue signaling. And it seems like it would be a really cool way for shooters in this country to kind of contribute to the either humanitarian or the, you know, defensive relief of the Ukraine. Just seems to me that would be a whole lot better idea. So, I don't know. Um, I think it's ridiculous. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. But again, you know, we live in ridiculous times and people act ridiculously. So, not sure. Okay, that's the one million rounds to the Ukraine. Here is the next question. And this comes from one of our listeners. Uh, he sent it uh, over the Podbean is it better to buy or build a rifle? I'll kind of go over that again. Is it better to buy or build a rifle? And that seems to be very straightforward, but there's a lot of different aspects. And the reason I like this question so much is you can kind of get to what, what to do depending on what your objective is. If your objective is to build an M4 style rifle as cheaply as possible. 
or to build anything else as cheaply as possible. Um, but I'll use an M4 style rifle as an example. Yes, it does make sense to build. Does it make sense to build an AK style rifle? Well, it might not. It might not. It's probably better to get one already assembled just because of the cost. If, we're, if all we're looking at is cost. If it's a precision rifle, does it make sense to buy or and it depends um, depends what you're looking for and what its use is going to be uh, you could argue that basically most rifles are builds anyway and that is we even if you buy a rifle you usually have to buy a mount scope rings and a scope if you're gonna put a optical sight on it or people accessorize their ARs with all sorts of gizmos everything from lasers to lights to you know whatever red dots or reflex sight they like holographic sight whatever it whatever it is so you could argue that those rifles are essentially builds um, I put together an M4 style rifle and I, I got the upper I wanted with the SOCOM heavy barrel I got the lower I wanted and I put them together and yeah voila there you go and I did it cheaper then it would have cost me to buy a similar style rifle. There are people who money is no object and they will either build themselves or or more typically have a rifle built for them by a a gunsmith or a shop that are basically craftsmen who build exceptional rifles and that used to happen that's always happened um, there are a lot of lot of companies that over the years going back to probably just after World War one who would you know they they will build you the custom you know hunting rifle now it's it's usually precision rifles and, and other things but there's always been that industry of people who build exceptionally high quality weapons for very discriminating clients so I, I would say that you know if your objective is to go as cheap as possible and and hey I, I've been there I've been there I do that I've been there um, I would say go for it absolutely go for it uh, build or have built a a gun that you want um, that's that's it and you can you can there's a lot of satisfaction in doing the work yourself putting on the mount yourself mounting the rings mounting the optic switching out the stock all things that I did with my 6.5 Creedmoor um, there's a lot of satisfaction in doing that a lot of satisfaction in putting together your own AR with the parts that you want and all of that or just you know hey I found these good parts and I want to put them together um, I have put together I will I will go over my deal I've put together an M1 rifle and I did that because I bought a barreled action from the CMP I hate to say it was about 15 years ago, 16 years ago, but it was. They sold a barreled action. That's all it was, a barrel on a receiver. And I had so many M1 spare parts that except for, I can't remember. I think, I even had an extra op rod. So I think I had all the parts for it. I did not use, I had an early, um, an earlier style, um, gas cylinder and I didn't really want to use that one so I've used a uh, so I used a later one they're, they're the same identically it's just when they were made
So I basically said, okay, I've, I've built an M1 rifle. I think I had to buy a couple of sight parts. That's what I had to buy. I knew I bought something, but I bought a couple of sight parts. So I have built an M1 rifle from a CMP barreled receiver. Uh, next thing, I did put together the 6.5 Creedmoor. I, I built, quote unquote, that. I built the M4, or M forgery is probably the better way to put it. And the only other gun that I have built would be a uh, target grade 1911. And I had had, I had the slide, the match barrel, the sights, all those goody parts. And I needed a lower receiver. I bought one of those from Fusion Arms. Came with a beautiful trigger pull. But I did have to have a gunsmith fit it together. And it is a super accurate 1911 that I really like. So it's target grade national match style gun. So those are the guns I built. And, you know, can I afford a national match 1911 well if i save my money i can you know i'm not poor mouthing myself i could i could be like anybody else i could save my money and get it but i already had these parts so i decided to have i bought the part that i needed and i had them put together and am very happy with the result the uh the grand i did almost everything myself on because i um you know i was familiar enough with the grand i you know if i had to do it today from from jump right now it probably would take me a while but i was pretty familiar with the garand so i i was able to do that and uh, i actually even had the wood i mean i even had the wood for it so you know that that was kind of a no-brainer and same thing with the m4 i was so the m forgery i was so familiar with that that it wasn't a big deal at all was able to do it so i say building is a really good way to go but for a lot of a lot of purposes um buying a gun right off the shelf is is nice it's very nice uh i bought a p a sig p210 target why did i buy it well i i saw it and fell in love with it and i can use it for for target shooting and other things but i um you know that's not a gun you'd have built that's a gun that you you buy so if you want that gun you you buy it but there are guns where you have a choice and uh, it's not a bad choice to build a gun. Not a bad choice. It can be a lot longer process and then sometimes a frustrating process depending on the amount of work that you're going to do yourself. But it can be a, a really rewarding deal and a way to get into a gun that, you know, you might not have had the money to get into. Which, you know, how who of us has not been there? I've, I've been there lots and lots and lots of times. So, that was a great question, and I appreciate that because it gave me a chance to talk about some of my own experience, which I, I like, like sharing that. Okay, what are the Ukrainians using as sniper weapons? Well, you know, the answer is I've, I've seen all kinds of pictures of everything. Everything. I saw one, and, and again, I don't know... I can't attest to the authenticity of every picture, but I have seen a couple Moisens, Moisen Nagants, World War II. You know, hey, they got a scope. They're bolt action. They're powerful. Um, there have been hunting rifles that are used, 
and I think it's also a function of you know the optics uh, the little bit of reading I've done on it they're they're keen to get uh, some first-rate optics so that's that's interesting I do know that uh, they probably have some SVDs 63s you know the SVD sniper rifle the uh, Dragonov so they probably they probably have a stockpile of those also um, I remember in Bosnia uh, and I did not see this but I read about it one of the snipers was using of all things and it makes sense when you think about it a 22-250 you know a varmint you know heavy barrel varmint gun um, with a powerful scope flat shooting cartridge with high velocity it made a lot of sense you know you're you're talking about guys who are going to be shooting they don't do the kind of long-range shooting in Europe that we do here so to them 500 yards is a long way so I'm sure that there's some rifles like that that have found their way from places like Germany and Poland and some of the other friendly conduits of, of uh, useful military equipment so that's what I assume they're using all right next question what do you think of AR folding stock adapters what these are if I got this right is you know the AR does not cannot use a folding stock the AR 15 cannot the AR 180 can but if the stock folds up alongside there's no buffer tube and you know there's no buffer spring and all that other goodness so they they usually use telescoping sights well now someone has come up with the kind of cool little doohickey fits on the end of the receiver and the buttstock fits to it and it can just hinge and it's got a hinge on it and just hinges over now when it's hinged over you cannot fire the rifle because the buffer tube and buffer spring and buffer are on the side of the rifle now and not directly behind it where they need to be to uh, to work so for compactness uh, you can do that but it's not like you can keep leave it folded and actually you know use the gun in some kind of close quarters or in an, in an emergency use type of deal um, so therefore I'm not really a big fan of them I don't to me it's a very compact weapon as it is so I don't know why we need to go more compact other than it goes to something that I've talked about in the podcast before that smaller weapons are cool because the cool operators use the smaller weapons which I've always found the smaller weapons are usually not as good as the long ones uh, witness the M14 you know I take a regular M14 any day of the week or M14 style you got over the shorter barrel you know SOCOM scout and all that you know they they are just not as good in my opinion so anyway that's the uh, shorter barrels are more cool shorter more compact guns are more cool unless there's an overriding need for that compactness and there's really not going to be a compelling situation where you have to fire it from that condition uh, that'd be fine I mean I can think of if you're in Alaska maybe something like that in a light airplane where hey you could you could be forced down and 
you know, you're out in the big cruel world and there's not a whole lot of space in your small airplane, that might make sense. Or a, you know, some sort of an ATV situation or your, your four-wheel drive, somewhere where you may need a weapon and it needs to be, but it needs to be stowed in as compact a package as possible. Then one of those would make some sense. Then it would make some sense. Okay, here's another one, another Ukraine question. Why are and why are there no optical or red dot sights on the AK rifles in the Ukraine war? Well, I don't know that that's 100% true, but I will say that I've looked at a lot of pictures and seen nothing but iron sights, and I can explain that in a kind of a couple different layers. The first is the the people who are going up to police stations and getting AK-74s, you know, the Ukrainians who are doing that, kind of volunteering to be the the militia. Uh, those those guns were never equipped with any kind of a sight, nor are they equipable for any type of sight. They don't have any kind of rails or or anything. These are just troopy, the actual 1974 gun. You know, 50, 48 years old now. This is the 48-year-old gun now. Um, so they never came with them. There's no provision to put them on. So that's why they don't have them. Uh, the regular Ukrainian army, I think they've got a mixed hodgepodge of things. I'm sure that if they, if any of their Tier 1 or if any of their elite units have survived, they probably have some sort of optical sight capability. Whether they're using them or not, is another question and I'll get to that the Russians we see don't seem to have them either and I, I attribute that to there are probably a lot of conscripts and you usually a conscript is hard enough to train um, with just regular stuff so introducing the complexity of a dot site and sighting it in and making sure it works and that the batteries are okay that may be just something they don't want to bother with but I think the real reason you're not seeing them is because they have, after three, four weeks now, they've broken the code on the fact that while that stuff is nice, how rugged is it in this brutal, wet, nasty, muddy field environment? All those things mitigate against an optical sight. You get mud on it, you have to clean it off. You clean it off by dumping water on it. Well, when it's super cold, water might get inside thing and freeze. The water might do this. The water, you know, it's it's going to be a mess. After three or four weeks straight, uh, what is the battery life of any of these? Some of them, it's probably okay. I'm sure aim points would be okay. I don't know how many aim, aim points they have, but if they have copies of them, they may not have the sophistication of the uh, long battery life, so they're going to be changing out batteries all the time. This is why on my M forgery, I have a flip-up sight, because if my EOTech, if I can't find, if my batteries go down and I can't find or don't have any shitty batteries or replacement batteries to put in there, I've got a pop-up sight, so I'm still in business. I don't know that they have that kind of capability or they're thinking that way. And I'm also sure that, you know, it goes back. Russia is a regional land power. They don't have a lot of the wealth to spend on nice-to-have things. 
So there, that's those are reasons. Another reason is they're finding that in the gut-busting, close-range infantry war that they're in, that iron sights work just fine. Iron sights are reliable. They don't fall out of adjustment. They're not shooting anything at longer range. Their AK sights are inherently quick to pick up. Um, you know, it's kind of like a big pistol sights on a on a gun. They they have a big, you know, open notch in the back and a post on the front. And uh, the only the only problem you have is obviously at night. You you know, it's hard to see, but um, that's that's the way it goes. And the other thing is, if you're shooting it at a, a person who's dressed all in black against a black background, you may not see your front sight post because it may just blend in. So those are about the only debits, but for every other reason, they're going to be, they're going to be good. And face it, that's just that's just the way it is. Simplicity is sometimes the big winner, and so I think simplicity is the reason that we're not seeing a lot of the Gucci stuff. You know, this isn't an insurgency where people are going back to their base. This is a place where, you know, people are out for days or weeks at a time. They don't have time to fool with complexity. So that's why I believe we are not seeing a lot of fancy sights on these rifles. I think another reason, another reason is, and I've never really talked about this, but most rifles, as a matter of fact, except for the AUG, the Steyr AUG or AUG, most rifles were designed as iron sight rifles, and so we've added these optical sights on. The AR is an example. You know, we took the uh, what we call the carrying handle off, and put a put a rail there, and, and we can plop these things on. But it was still designed fundamentally as an iron sight rifle. So, you know, the balance and handling characteristics were did not take into account that glass or some kind of sight would be put on them. These these the things have been added on afterwards. And uh, the AK family is, is, of course, the same way. So the guns handle better with iron sights without the other junk on them. They handle better. In close combat, a split second is your life. A split second can be your life. So... I think that's probably another reason that we're not going to see it. Uh, you won't you won't see a whole bunch of these things. Um, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of lessons learned and what what kind of combat techniques come out of this, because this is the first time. I guess you could say Bosnia really was the first time, but this seems to be the really first time that there is a high-intensity or mid-intensity um, conflict in kind of built-up areas around cities. All that stuff that we talked about in the Cold War, kind of happening now. Um, Ukrainians are, you know, they're outnumbered and outgunned, but they're giving a good enough show that. It's going to be very interesting. This conflict will be studied for years to come. 
and uh, that will be a very interesting very interesting uh, situation and last question is really not a gun question but do you think the Russians will use weapons of mass destruction if you're talking about chemical nuclear and biological my assessment would be no because you need a reason to use those and part of the reason is you're either retaliating because they used it against you the next one is there's some objective that must be denied to everyone some key piece of terrain and the only way to do that is to contaminate it that'd be the only reason you'd use that or there's got to be some way that it breaks or you do it to break the will of, of the enemy and I don't know that any of those three would justify the risk of using that and getting some sort of you know retaliatory response from somewhere or someone um, I think just like in every other war since World War one we have not used them and actually since World War two we have not used the uh, anything nuclear so I don't think I don't think they will um, but it's always scary that something unexpected could happen you know if there's an old cachet of these things somewhere and they inadvertently get loose or somebody just gets the good idea to use them who you know you war is never predictable but my assessment is that they they will not use those so that is where we stand and this brings to a close episode 132 of old school guns the podcast that does tell you like it is and so i uh just want to tell you any questions any comments like i said at the beginning go ahead and leave them and on our podbean server on the comments section or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com but until next time this is old school guns out <laughs>